Hello everyone and welcome to Radio Ombudsman in Lockdown. My guest today is one of the giants of public life in the 21st century, Sir Robert Francis. Sir Robert, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Most of you will be familiar with Sir Robert's glittering career. He's a, a graduate of law uh, from Exeter University, he qualified as a barrister and became a QC, and he specialises in medical law. He's chaired an enormous number of very important inquiries into the treatment of patients to do with uh, serious mental illness. He chaired the independent inquiry into Stafford Hospital in 2010 and then a full public inquiry afterwards. Uh, we'll want to talk about this uh, landmark public inquiry uh, in the conversation. Uh, Sir Robert then chaired the Freedom to Speak Up review into whistleblowing, another big subject. And since then, he's gone on to take very important positions uh, with the CQC and uh, in 2018 as the new chair of Health Watch. So we're very lucky to have you. Could you just start off, as is the tradition with Radio Ombudsman, of telling us just a little bit about your background and what values were instilled in you from a young age? Well, I was born in China, uh, but had to leave that when I was two months old. Uh, my father worked in the oil industry, uh, and actually I spent a lot of my childhood in East Africa and uh, before coming back to England to go to school. And um, when I grew up, eventually, if I ever have, um, I went into law, as you've said, and I've been a barrister all my life, which um, is a peculiar life because it equips you to be entirely independent, to work for yourself and on your own. Uh, and yet here I am now chairing an organisation and talking about strategy and implementation of operational business plans and so on. So um, that's my uh, sort of overall life. In terms of values, I admire my father a, a lot. He's not with us anymore, sadly. And if he had taught me one thing wherever we lived, it was that you respect everyone regardless of their background uh, and everyone needs to be given a chance. And he got quite senior in his work, but he always said that when you pass people on the way up, always remember you pass them all the way down as well. <laughs> uh, and um, I, I think that's really what I've tried to live by for, for most of my life. That's very interesting. What, I mean, why did you study law and become a barrister? Stereotypically, actually, I uh, want, rather wanted to be an actor, and I was a very bad actor. Uh, I actually could never remember the lines. I used to cut people out of plays, missing cues in, in amateur dramatics at Exeter University. And the great thing about being a barrister is that you make up the script as you go along. You have instructions, but the words are always your own. And uh, there's the drama of it, which I enjoyed a lot, probably too much. And I got to enjoy speaking in public. So uh, for all those reasons, I think that's why I went into law. As I developed a legal career, uh, I, I think um, I also realised the capacity of the law to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and um, I found that part has been the most rewarding, really, um, of the work that I've done. It's very interesting that you decided to specialise in healthcare issues. Was that an accident or a design? 
Uh, very little in my life has been by design, and certainly that wasn't my. I started off doing a general common law practice. The law is a bit like medicine in that it's become increasingly specialised over the years. When I, when I started as a generalist, and I used to plod around the Western Circuit doing crime in the Crown Courts, family law, a little bit of commercial law, uh, and so on. But uh, uh, some medical work began to come into my chambers, and some of it came to me. And I found that by far the most interesting thing to do, partly because it was often at the forefront of the development of legal principles, but mainly because it was an area in which it really made a difference to people's lives, both the patients and, and, and the doctors, what happened in these cases. Uh, and I met, I've met some fantastic people, both as experts, as professionals and as victims, uh, sadly, in the course of my career and I've been privileged therefore to have an absolutely fascinating life in terms of the people I've met and the work I've been able to do and I wouldn't have been able to do that frankly with all due respect to some of my colleagues if I'd gone into banking or commercial law. Did being a barrister and the discipline that that required help you in the very stressful inquiries like Alderhay for example or Stafford that you're engaged in which must have been very difficult um, I think I think being a barrister helped in a number of ways. Firstly, the work that I had done, albeit on a smaller scale in my legal practice, meant that I often met people in the worst moments of their lives, uh, both as patients or as professionals. Uh, and uh, I think that steeled me to some of the stresses involved in meeting and having to console sometimes, but certainly listen to and be patient with people who've gone through very bad things indeed. I think also a barrister's life treat, allows you to deal with the isolation that, that comes with the responsibilities of running inquiries, because that was just part of my daily life. And finally, a barrister's training helps you analyse evidence uh, to find out what the evidence is, put it all together and use it to come to a conclusion. So I think in a number of ways, different ways, really, um, it, it helped me get through what, as you say, was a, um, an exciting and a worthwhile, but at times a very stressful process. Thank you. We'll, we'll come back to that. But at the moment, you're chair of Health Watch. Could, could you tell the listeners a bit about what that involves? Yes, well, um, Health Watch... England uh, is a national body which supports a network of local health watches, of which there are, I think, 152 around the country. Every local authority has one in its area. And Health Watches, her family, uh, has the role of being the independent consumer champion of patients and service users in the health service, uh, but is funded by the government. Um, we might come back to funding later but uh, basically our role is to go out and find out what people's experiences have been of services what they think about them and how they think they might be improved and then make sure that what people are saying is on the table where people are making uh, uh, decisions uh, and um, we're both locally and, and nationally and as chair of health watch it's my job partly to do things like i'm doing today which is to raise its profile it's perhaps not had the profile it needs to do its work completely effectively in the past um, and, and to lead the strategy or, or, or in terms of the focus and the priorities of what we what we do. 
But um, if I can give an example, some examples of what we have done recently, uh, we undertook a major consultation exercise for the government in relation to the NHS long-term plan, which resulted in us being able to bring the views of 85,000 people to the table to help shape that plan. And once that had been done, we went out and consulted again all, all local health watches locally as to how the plan could be implemented locally. So we proved, I think, our worth in relation to helping the service improve itself by the way it listens to people. I'd like to ask two follow-up questions on that. First of all, how have you managed to survive the pandemic at Healthwatch? Surprisingly well, actually, largely, of course, through the dedication and commitment of the of the people who work for us. But uh, Healthwatch England just disappeared <laughs> from the office to, into to, to our homes, and we have carried on meetings as if we'd always done it that way, and it's been marvellous. And I think communications with local health watch again have been easy because um, to some extent, health watch is a bit of a virtual organization anyway, and is spread around the country. And so we are used to communicating virtually. What we miss, of course, is the contact with each other, which you can only do if you're in the same room. But um, I think we've done pretty well in keeping going with business as usual, actually. Added to, to it, of course, has been the need to keep abreast of the rapid developments because of the pandemic and ensuring that the other part of our role, which is making sure we have information is available to the public, um, has been available. And that, as probably you'll realise, has been a challenging task when the information has been changing on sometimes a daily basis. One of the themes of your career is the importance of user involvement in policy making. I mean, that's that's what the the Patients Association, which you chair, does, and to some extent CQC as well. So you must consider this to be fundamental to effective public management. I, I do, and I think we, uh, I think slowly the central powers that be are learning uh, that they ignore what people think and experience at their peril, uh, and that the best services are created and designed in conjunction with the people those services are designed to. To, to help and um, increasingly um, it's realised that if you don't listen to people uh, they don't get the services they want uh, they become discontented even more than they were before and they then start wanting to hold people to account so yes I do think it's absolutely vital and it's the main reason of course I was delighted to accept the job of being chair of Health Watch because it is such a central part of improving the health service, to listen to patients, as it is, of course, for doctors to listen to their patients when they're sitting in front of them in a consulting room. You recently launched the Because We All Care campaign for the CQC. Could you tell us a little, a little bit about that, please? Well, the, the idea of this is to promote the facilities and the resources available for people to tell CQC and, indeed, Health Watch uh, about their services and what they think about them. I, I think that it, we, we need to remember that uh, our health service, our NHS, as politicians keep on calling it, and of course it's not theirs, it's ours, brings with it uh, huge benefits, but it also brings with it responsibilities. And I think one of those responsibilities is for us all to recall that we all can have and should have a say and speak up 
about things that we find that are good, things that we find aren't so good, and, and in that way to help put things right. If we're silent, we're letting things deteriorate. Uh, and when if, whereas if we speak up, uh, things can only improve. We know from work that PHSO has done and other people as well, that actually service users are quite often very reluctant to say what they think. Um, that, that applies to staff as well, but certainly to service users. And that, that is a challenge which bodies like Healthwatch and the Patients Association have to address. Do you think we've gone any further in, in being successful at that? I'd, I'd like to think we have, but we've got a long way to go. Um, it seems to me that a principal reason that, that uh, service users don't want to raise concerns uh, is the, the fear that there will be some adverse consequence to them if they're still under still take, uh, accepting a service. But also, more generally, and, and this I think comes through reports that Healthwatch has written and, and indeed your own reports, they won't speak up if they don't think it's going to make any difference. It's a it's a big thing to speak up and say that you're, you don't think the service was very good uh, for whatever reason, and you feel exposed, uh, and you're not going to take the time, the effort, uh, and the stress sometimes of doing that unless you think it's going to have a result. And I think too often that there hasn't been a result, and certainly that was true with Staffordshire when I was inquiring into that. But even when something is done, uh, the service is not terribly good at telling people that something has happened as a result of what they have done and contributed by, by speaking up. So I think those are the challenges. Uh, and, I, and I think that what um, we're talking about today, uh, the framework, is a method that's going a long way towards giving people the confidence uh, that if they have something to say, it will be listened to and something will happen as a result. Uh, so you, you, you've very kindly been a supporter of the concept of the complaint standards framework. Do you agree with us, with me, that complaints handling in the NHS is very variable and has lacked investment and leadership over a long period of time? Yes, uh, and I think witness to that is firstly, or the evidence of that is firstly what... I found at Mid-Staffordshire and what I had to say about complaints there, which did lead to a favourable response from, from the government. Uh, but Healthwatch and the Ombudsman have been writing reports on this subject since 2014, I think. Uh, and we, we, then we ourselves went out and did a report this year on consistency and found that there is a, a lack of consistency in how different trusts uh, run their complaint system. There's a lack of consistency in what information is available about them. And none of this really helps individuals have confidence that if they make a complaint that something will happen. Uh, and um, I'd say that's why perhaps much why we at Healthwatch and I in particular welcome uh, this framework as, as being a, a real step forward if it can be embedded and implemented um, uh, throughout the country. There's a real dilemma here, which you know all about and have, have led the way on, really. And that is that, of course, the people who have to conduct the complaints are not the leaders of the organisation. They're well down the pecking order. And they feel, in my experience, that they're 
they don't have status to be able to challenge clinicians and they're, they're not invested in in the way they need to do to do their job. That's true and that needs addressing. But you also make the point you did in a very good interview you did with Sean Linton that leaders uh, and senior managers in the health service have to own the system and have to speak out when things go wrong. And there's been a, really a great reluctance for that to happen. I agree with that. Complaints, uh, taking those points in order, complaints handling has never, in my view, been given a sufficient priority, either in terms of funding, training, or the status of the people who are res- uh, responsible for doing it. And it requires board level leadership, uh, frankly, uh, to make sure that improves. And it also requires role modelling by leaders that so that it, everyone in an organisation and indeed the public see that when something has gone wrong, that they are ready to accept that it's gone wrong, are willing to do something about it and demonstrate that they've done something about it. And, and if that happens, then it is much more likely that people in the lower levels of the organisation will follow that lead, as opposed to the depressing sight that one too often sees of the complaints process being considered as a means of trying to find a defence uh, and a reason to reject, in effect, reject a complaint or to ignore it. And that's not what a complaint should be about. It's, a complaint is actually a gold nugget of information that the organisation should exploit and the person who raises it should be thanked for what the contribution they're making to the improvement of the service. And that's true whether the complaint is actually found to be completely justified or, or, or not completely justified. I, I think you've done more than almost anyone else to raise the issue of the need to disclose when things go wrong, particularly in the health service. And one of the outcomes of that has been the Speak Up Guardian. I mean, that clearly made a difference to people's ability to articulate their concerns to to organisations. But has it really made a difference to whistleblowing per se? Well, again, I think the picture is um, variable. Uh, uh, I mean, the great thing about uh, speak, Freedom to Speak Up Guardians is that they are people or should be people who have the authority, not by rank, but by respect, uh, shared by the staff and, and the lead leadership, um, to open doors to ensure that what should be happening about a concern is happening and to pursue it in that way. And I'd actually quite like to see a similar principle being applied to complaints by members of the public. But um, you ask whether things have got better. I think it it depends. Uh, The National Guardian's office has recently issued a report which shows there's been a rapid increase in the number of cases that Freedom to Speak Up Guardians are, are, are undertaking. Uh, and, and this suggests uh, that it's a system which people in, in, in organisations where this is happening believe that something will happen if the Freedom to Speak Up Guardian is involved. I, I think that um, there is a long way to go. It's a new new system and it hasn't solved all the problems. Are whistleblowers treated better? I think they are in the good, good healthy trusts where the Freedom to Speak Up Guardian is able to ensure that solutions are found to the issues that have been raised and also 
that the whistleblower gets support rather than victimization. But I'm afraid there are still dark corners where the opposite is the case and still continues to be found to be the case. So it's not the whole of the answer, but uh, it is part of the answer. In Scotland, the Scottish government has passed a new piece of legislation which gives the right of whistleblowers to complain to the public service ombudsman, which doesn't happen in the United Kingdom. Is there any merit in that idea? I think it's worth exploring, uh, uh, but whistleblowers already have the uh, right to raise their concerns with national regulators, like the Care Quality Commission. I think where there is a gap, uh, and I think I identified it in my report, is that the legal protections for whistleblowers are that by whistle. I prefer to talk about people who speak up, but let's talk about whistleblowers as people who've been victimised. It is too complicated and too late. So um, nothing very effective can be done to provide instant protection to someone who's being treated badly. The National Guardian's office doesn't have that power. Uh, it has the power to undertake case reviews, but th- those aren't really designed to deal with individual problems. Uh, and I think that there is a body, of, a growing body of opinion that suggests that something more needs to be done to bring early justice and support uh, to people who have been treated badly because they've raised a concern in good faith. Thank you. And this isn't a question, it's a comment. And... One of the ironies of the pandemic has been that the government called on medics to come back and help the health service in the crisis. And I heard from a lot of uh, medical practitioners who said to me, well, I, you know, I disclosed wrongdoing and I got banished as a result of that. And I think that, you know, that's not a satisfactory position. No, uh, there were some concerning reports in the early stages of the pandemic along those uh, lines, and it resulted in a letter having to be written to all trusts to remind them of their duties in relation to the freedom to speak up. And I think it's an illustration of a, of a wider point, if I may say so, which is that we, we can all strive to change culture for the better, uh, but the test for a good culture is whether it survives emergencies and the pressure that comes through them. And I think that when we come to review um, the performance of the health service and others in relation to COVID-19, one of the things to look at is whether the culture that you and I and and others like us want to see in the health service uh, was allowed to continue or, or whether it wasn't. Can I ask you about your reflections of the Mid-Staffordshire inquiry 10 years on, because I think we've moved to a situation where holding a public inquiry now is seen to be unusual, exceptional, and there is a great reluctance for it to happen. That's certainly the case over COVID, where the government says in theory it wants a public inquiry, but won't give any details about when or it might happen or, or what it would contain. Do you think there's a problem here? Well, to be honest, I think public inquiries have always been the exception rather than the rule. And generally speaking, uh, they've always come about after a period of resistance by central government to having them. And the resistance is understandable for two reasons. One is the cynic, you know, being cynical, who, who wants their homework marked in public by a public inquiry. But seriously, the 
they, they are expensive. Uh, they, they do, generally speaking, take a long time to come to a conclusion. And sometimes, therefore, they can actually potentially delay uh, lessons being learned. For instance, in the current crisis, it's clear to me um, that we need something to review how you manage the pandemic now in order to learn the lessons before this winter, which you couldn't really do through a public inquiry, I suspect. But um, th th there is a, a, a reluctance. But, and public inquiries aren't necessarily the whole answer, even when they occur. They can be the beginning of a process, um, but they very much, th th their success depends upon what happens after the inquiry, whether the recommendations are accepted, whether they are implemented, and whether progress is overseen in a regular and systematic way. And I'm afraid most inquiries fall down because that doesn't actually happen either at all or for long enough. I'm happy to say in the case of the Stafford inquiries, I think um, there, there was a fair amount of oversight and uh, monitoring at least for a period of time after inquiry finished. Whether it's still going on sufficiently, maybe for others to judge. Okay. One of the things that you have been a consistent champion of is the idea of giving professional status to managers in the health service so that they can be called to account professionally in what they do. But we haven't got very far on, on that. No, we haven't. Uh, of, of course, part of that is, is about people being accountable, but actually it's also partly about giving people a status which puts them, as it were, on a level playing field with everyone else who's in the in the health service. The, the existence of the accountability that, say, a doctor has in terms of the General Medical Council is not matched by anything that the management have. Uh, and I, I just think that it would be much better for all concerned um, if uh, they all came to the table as recognised professionals, albeit in their slightly different fields. Uh, and I, I do think it's something that needs to be, be looked at. And of course, various steps have happened, which have undoubtedly improved the training and development that is offered to NHS leadership. Uh, but in terms of the structure as a profession, uh, I think there's still a way to go. We're coming towards the end, but uh, I want to pick up on something uh, that you raised at the beginning, which is about the resources available to the kind of bodies that, that you lead. We, we seem to be in a position where there is a huge imbalance between the resource given to the health service on the one hand and social care on the other. And I think you've made a point about how extensive the cuts to local government have been, which Im impacts on the ability to do good things when, when you have a crisis. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, it's felt acutely, um, the point you raised by by Healthwatch, uh, because um, I, I had to write to the Secretary of State about this to highlight the issue of cuts of funding to local Healthwatch, which, as you will know, is funded by a Byzantine complicated route where the Department of Health hands over some money to the Department of Communities and Local Government, who then pass it on as part of a block grant to local authorities so it's not ring fenced and of course is a vulnerable area and, and we all know how strapped for money local authorities are uh, and the result of that has been that over the last six years uh, funding has fallen by about a third uh, and some local health watches are now receiving less than the predecessor organizations were 
uh, which would have been in 2011. And frankly, some of them are barely able to carry on existing. So just in our area, and I appreciate there are other good causes which are suffering in the same way, it's very difficult for Local Health Watch to do its job properly of consulting the public and giving a profile to the public voice. Um, if, frankly, you've got an office consisting of two or three part-time people and not much else. And uh, so I, I think it is an area that needs looking at. And as far as social care is concerned, we forget social care at our peril, as we've discovered tragically during the pandemic. Uh, and it needs to be considered in the same breath in terms of finance as the health service and isn't being. And um, I'm really worry about um, the future unless um, promises of the government are fulfilled in relation to um, actually changing reforming social care. They say they're going to do it. Let's hope they do. We also have a problem that the Ombudsman for Social Care is different from the Ombudsman for Health. And we work very closely together, but that is a Monty Python situation, which which needs to be reformed alongside any bringing together of the services themselves. Yes. Well, um, we're never going to have a properly integrated healthcare service unless social care and health are talked about in the in the same breath. And, and uh, um, I mean, there are all sorts of different ways in which that, that could be brought about. Most of them, I'm afraid, quite complicated. But uh, uh, until the NHS and, uh, considers it to be a partner with social care and vice versa, uh, then I'm afraid a lot of people are going to fall through the gaps in the system and the money will be difficult. It will be difficult to make sure that the money goes and the resources go to the right place at the right time. And I'm afraid that does need to change and it needs to change urgently. Okay, two final questions, if I may. First of all, in your long career, what has been the most difficult thing you've tried to do? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll leave, leave aside the, the cases which were difficult, if impossible to win in my legal career. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't think I've done anything more difficult in my career than uh, the inquiry into Mid Staffordshire. Uh, and in a way, I think that's why I'm still here, as it were, in the system, trying to do, do things. Because it was quite clear to me that I couldn't treat those inquiries as yet another case and walk away from them. Uh, and uh, it, it is just making recommendations is not good enough. You actually need a system which takes these things forward. And I felt if I could help without being a sort of preacher of the gospel uh, of trying to propagate my, promote my own work, then that was something I wanted to do. That's a good answer. And the final question is this. It follows on, really. What advice would you give to our young colleagues who come into the ombudsman and regulatory uh, services in terms of the difficulties that they face at the beginning of of their career what, what would you say to them goodness uh well firstly i'd say thank you for coming to do what's very important work but uh, I, I think whatever walk of life you're in in public service but particularly perhaps in this field you you need always to put the people you serve first uh, and that recall it requires listening to them however difficult that is learning what's best for them and then being honest about with them uh, about what can be done and what can't be done uh, and involving them. If you can do all of those things at the same time as following the Byzantine rules that many of us are required to follow, 
uh, then you will achieve something. If you just follow the rules, you will, are likely to fail. The rules are only there because there's a point to be made, and that is to make sure that the people who use our services um, get a say in them and are listened to and, and are dealt with in a fair and just manner. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, so Robert, we're really grateful to you for coming on and sharing your views. It's a pleasure. Could I just remind listeners that the consultation on the complaint standards framework, which we've been talking about, is going beautifully. It's had hundreds of uh, submissions so far, but it's open until September the 18th. So you still have a chance uh, to make it. Thank you again, Sir Robert, and uh, to everyone in lockdown, with the rain coming down, uh, have a good day and all the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.